0: Hi everyone, I'm Cindy Mooring, the Founder and Executive Chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here we talk about applying ethics, integrity and courageous leadership in business, education and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair, and we have a very special guest with us today. Remember, the topic for this season is responsibly tech savvy. It's all about tech ethics. And we have a CTO with us today, Wilson Pang. Hi, Wilson.
1: Hey, Cindy. Thank you for having me here.
0: You bet. Let me tell you all a little bit about um, Wilson. Not only is he a CTO, um, he has quite an illustrious background. And he is also the co-author of our book of the semester, Real World AI. So Wilson is the chief technology officer at a company known as Appen. Uh, In addition to the co-author of our book, Appen is a company that has over 20 years of experience providing high quality training data. With a leading technology platform, managed services, and a global team, they help other companies power their AI globally. Wilson himself has over 19 years of experience in software engineering and data science. Before he joined Appen, he was a chief data officer at CTRIP which is the second largest online travel agency in the world. He was also a senior director of engineering at eBay and a tech solution architect at IBM. Lots of really great experience, Wilson, who that I think probably prepared you for your CTO role that you have today. So congratulations and thank you for being here with us.
1: Thank you, Sandy. I think it really appreciate you having me here to just share the different perspective and talk to all these future uh, business leaders.
0: Yeah, I agree. Why Why don't you, if you don't mind, I love the audience to get to know the guests a little bit at the beginning. I mean, I can always read the bio, but they don't really get to know you. So can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey to where you are today, which is CTO of Appen? How did you end up there? How did you know that working in the AI space was something you even wanted to do?
1: Sure, sure. Um, That's, of course, uh, I've been in the with the tech industry for actually a little bit more than 20 years now. And wow. the last uh, 12, 13 years, it's all about data and machine learning. Yeah. Um, the city of Appen now, um, Cindy, you have already shared the company is really providing high quality training data to support other companies to build AI. Mm-hmm. So that gave me the opportunity to really observe all kinds of different AI applications, not just for one, for one company, but many company, many industries.
0: Yeah. Um, that's, before, that's a bird's eye view to a really important topic. When you think about that, I mean, you are, you're seeing AI for a bunch of different companies in all different industries.
1: Yes, yeah. And then before that, uh, when I was with Ctrip, basically I'm doing all kinds of AI for the travel industry. It's really like a deep into one industry and I see how AI and data can help there. And then back to eBay, uh, my journey in eBay, there's multiple parts, like I basically, start with the uh, um, engineering part for payment, then move to search science. That's time the first time for me to get exposed to AI and machine learning. Um, AI was not even a buzzword at that time. That's probably 12, 13 years ago. right? Then I also get the uh, opportunity to lead some horizontal efforts to build all the data solutions to support the whole company, all different um, parts of the uh, functions like marketing, yeah. business, finance, uh, like a product all kinds of areas. I feel when I look at look back at my career, I found myself like super lucky for a few things. One is really, I I got to work on the real AI applications like long time ago, like search science, right? Uh, AI was not a, not a hardware at that time, but I am lucky enough to be able to go really deep and see how AI works in one domain. Uh, then I'm also very lucky to be able to, uh, leading those horizontal efforts to support applications from different functions within a company. And then now at Appen, I can see all those, like you said, Cindy, the broader view, how AI is working across different industries. Yeah. So, yeah, those give me a lot for different perspective there. So I saw a lot of success and a failure, like either through my first-hand experience or through just observing how others are doing AI. Yeah, uh, give yeah. me a very deep vertical view how AI works, as well a broader view how AI is used in different places. I think those are super helpful for my career.
0: Yeah, I I, I would bet. So you are an engineer and a data scientist, and um, I I just have to ask you uh, just to start out since we're talking about responsible tech and and, and tech ethics, is it? Natural, do you think, for engineers and, and data scientists to think holistically um, about AI in, in this way, like think about the ethics side of it? Or, or is that something that's kind of a learned skill, like learning to ride a bike?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Cindy. It's actually very unnatural for data scientists to think holistically. Here's why. If you look at how our data scientists are trained at college, right? Uh-huh. Basically, they learn the math behind the AI model. They learn how to tune a parameter of the model, how to really make the model work. All those technology and the theory behind AI. Got it. No one like, was really talking about ethics at that time. And then after college, they move to the industry, start to work in the like real AI, real world AI problems, right? Then what right. the they hear is they spend a lot of time on data. They care now more than just, let's say, precision recall all those theory metrics, but what's the user conversion rate? Uh, what's mm-hmm. the click-through rate for S, mm-hmm. What's the user engagement? They're trying to use AR to solve a real business problem, drive business growth. Um, that's the whole focus. Only the last few years, I think more and more people start to realize, start to see uh, what's the potential damage AR can bring wow. if you do not do this in like, an ethical way. Yeah. Um, so how to bring all those different, but this like even now is still a pretty nice topic, how to get that right, right? I, I think you're right. Yeah, how to really like measure the AI ethics, how to bring the different perspective into the uh, AI team, how to get the data right to remove all the bias, like how to treat the folks who are helping the AI like fairly, um, how to protect the user privacy. Like those are all the things we need to consider. Um, but we are still at the early stage of it. So the um, important fact is that more and more people uh, care about AI ethics, and we are all working together to solve the problem. Sandy, I, like your program is uh, just another great example, right? I'm super excited to see you bring all those tech ethics and those perspectives to our future business leaders.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, because as I've discovered in in what came out in the book, Real World AI, which is written by, so interestingly, you as an engineer, and then a non-technical person, Alyssa, who is a product manager, but bringing those two perspectives together to write what I would call a, a plain English uh, guide for really anyone, whether they're a data scientist and software engineer or a product manager, or you know, lo and behold, in marketing, everybody has something to learn. I think from the the approach that you took in that book. So, so let me ask you, how do you think is the best way for data scientists and engineers, in particular, to hone their skills in this area? Does it come through practice, or is it more? training that needs to be done?
1: I think the number one thing there is really to raise awareness. Like your program is helping, our book is helping, there's a lot of effort is helping. So AI today is penetrating to almost all the industries and it's impacting almost every piece of our life in society, right? It's really hard for me to think of any area, there's no AI. So basically a lot of human decisions now replaced by the AI decisions. If the ethic is not an important factor to consider there, the damage can be huge. Uh, once the awareness is there, I think the data scientists or the engineers, they can be equipped with all those different like methodologies and the tools how the, for them to like measure the AI ethics uh, for, to help them to build the AI, like, responsible AI in like, a correct way. Um, and of course, I think you hit the, the, the very important um point. Training is just probably like one small part, how to yeah. practice like in their day-to-day
0: life Yeah, again,
1: again and again.
0: Yeah, again, and you're right. I mean, because it, it, it changes all the time and there's new issues, new questions that need to be asked. And, you know, it would seem to me that sometimes, unfortunately, we all do learn from the mistakes that others make. And I think particularly in the tech field, there's this, you know, desire to move quickly so you can stay ahead of the competition a bit. Um, which may have caused some of these deeper questions about not can we, but should we, uh, to not be brought to the to the forefront quite as much. What what do you think are were some of those like may, what are some of the main risk areas for the deployment of AI where maybe we did have to learn through some bad examples? What comes to mind for you?
1: Uh, there's quite a few risk areas. I think everyone should be aware. Um, the first one is really the AI potentially using user's private data. Um, mm-hmm. For example, facial recognition, right? This is a very classical AI uh, example there. Um, to train a facial recognition uh, AI model, you have to use users like picture data. Um, but when you train the model, do you have the right of those data? Do you have the user's consent? Can you really use this data? Those have to be answered before you can deploy a facial recognition model. So yeah. that's the first category, really AI model touch user private data. Okay. The second category is really AI in those highly regulated domains. Um, there's different laws from different countries. Uh, for example, in US, education, uh, public accommodation, like hotels, um, housing, employment,
0: mm.
1: those are the areas protected by the law. You, you cannot make have any discriminations there against yeah. gender age, religion, et cetera, right? Um, So those are protected human rights. And now you can see there's a lot of new AI models making those decisions in those domain. And we have to make sure those AI models don't have those discriminations there. So that's the second category. Uh, Last but not not least, um, there's also a lot of AI built with uncontrolled data. Um, Probably people have heard of there's a lot of uh, they call it a big language model, like a Gpt three say. It's super powerful. You can use a model to write an article, you can I'll tell it's from AI or from people. You can use the model to find answers for you from internet. You can even use a model to write a program to build a website for you. Super powerful. Um, how those kind of models is trained? They use almost all those text from the internet they can access, to train the model. But meanwhile, you can imagine all the text, from the internet, there's a lot of bias like from those texts too, right?
0: Because sure, Right, written yeah, by I, humans. And we all have an implicit bias that, well, yeah.
1: Yeah, and those are learned into the model. Mm-hmm. So you have to be aware with those uncontrolled data, uh-huh. there's potential bias, how you can remove those. So be aware of those like potential AI bias and put some measurements um, in those areas, super important.
0: Yeah, it is. So let's, let's, let's now get down to brass tacks, if you will, and get really, get really practical um, now that we've identified some of those risk areas. And I'm just going to ask you, where do you think the responsible AI journey should begin for a company? Like, obviously it begins with design, but let's just talk about that for a minute. Like, what should the design phase really look like and who should be part of the team and and all of that? Like, how does a company get started?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think a lot of people have a wrong impression, like AI team probably only consists of data scientists.
0: Yeah, I know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like PhD, like they have a different knowledge around machine learning, but that's not true. In reality, I think the team need to have uh, people from a different perspective. Right? Normally you need uh, uh, people who really understand the business problem. The AI is only useful way to solve a problem there, right? It can be a product manager, it can be a SME in an areas. And then you need to like come to the data scientists, data scientists who can model the business problem into an AR problem. Uh, and then you need like data engineers to help you to process data, other software engineer to help you to deploy the model to production and build a service on top of that. And if the, all those people, especially the product manager, SME, data scientists, they should really, uh, keep AI ethics in mind. Uh, Otherwise, that will cause a lot of problem, right? And and meanwhile, for the risk area we discussed earlier, if those areas are involved, when you build the AI model, Uh uh, normally I think the legal team is also part of the discussion in the design phase.
0: Should be, right, and and, and probably HR, if you're talking about any of those kind of risk areas with personal information about employees. So so we talk about the diversity of the team uh, in terms of different perspectives, I think obviously also just diversity in terms of the individuals around the table would also be important. But what are the kinds of questions specifically that you think should be asked in the design phase by the team to make sure that responsible and ethical AI is top of mind?
1: Teddy, I really like the way you are thinking here. Um, Ask the right question is always the first a uh, super important step to get the result you want, right? Uh, yeah. Here's some questions I always ask when we uh, touch any AI product. Like, who are the potential users of this AI product? Does the AI product perform the same way against different group of the users? Oh. Do we have a good way to measure? Um, not only performance, but also like fairness, right? Uh, mm. And also like for certain areas, do you have a, Let's say if it doesn't perform as expected, do you have a safe net or like a, a backup plan? Can you kill the idea or can you use a different approach? So I think those are the key questions to ask in the design phase.
0: Okay. All right. So it sounds like a lot of effort needs to be put into design. Um, not sure all companies have always spent enough time there because there's this rush, as we all know, to, to get things done quickly. Um, but if you ask the right questions at the beginning in the right way, um, hopefully you can get it right in design. And then after design, I think would come what? M- m- modeling, like so you get a prototype essentially put together. Um, mm-hmm. But what, what happens in that phase? We know it requires data. And we know that the data um, that gets fed into the model We need to, again, consider ethics, but we've already talked about the fact that we all have implicit bias, right? So, and you mentioned the bias is gonna be in the data itself, right? If you've got an AI looking for, so it just seems like this conundrum that you can't resolve. How do you build a model and ask the right questions to um, ensure that the model that you're building isn't biased or at least isn't exacerbating bad biases? Maybe just how do you make it better?
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. I think Senia are absolutely right. Actually, the data get the data right is the most important step. Build any real world AI models. We we all know like garbage in, garbage out, right? And also if exactly. the data has bias, the model has bias. Exactly. So, yeah. There's a two major categories of questions to ask when it comes to the data. Um. The first group is really about the data itself. Like, do you have the right data? Do you have the fair representativeness? of different class of the data. Let, like, let me give you a real example to bring this to life. Yeah. Uh, I want to build a very like simple AI model to classify the tweets. Is this tweet a positive twist or a negative twist, right? Okay. Uh, simple model. I get 1,000 tweets as my training data. Then I look at the data, 900 are from male, 100 are from female clearly you don't have enough representative for female tweets, right? You you need to fix that. Let's say I fix that now. I have 500 from male, 500 from female. Then I look, I get people to label those tweets, positive or negative. For those 500 from male, I say like 400 are positive, like 100 are negative. Clearly like the negative uh, representative is not enough, it's imbalanced. Like those are the examples like you can see the data is wrong and the wrong data can create problem for your model. And it introduces a lot like a bias or fairness problem with the model. So back to the first group, you have to get the data right. You need to look at the class imbalance, the label imbalance and all those stuff there. That's important. The second group is really about um, how you, you get the data, how you use the data, not the data itself, but how you collect the data, how you use the data, right? Um, you need to ask like how the data was collected uh, do I have the consent from the users who give you the data? Does it hurt you the privacy? And also if you are getting people, if you look at the AR ecosystem, it's not just data scientists, product managers, right? We also have a group of people who are like helping to label in the data, collecting the data. Those are the people normally you don't, they get not get a, like a super high pay as data scientist. Um, how can we make sure those people are also paid fairly? How can we make sure we are also care of those people's wellness? Um, So that's the second group. Basically how you, the way you collect data, the way you use data, there's a lot of things to consider to make it ethical too.
0: Okay, okay. So one of the things you mentioned earlier was the measurement Um, and I would would imagine that once you design it and you model it, you then want to do some measurement of your prototype, your model before you just put it into production. and so that probably comes out in the monitoring of it, I would imagine, of, of the model. But how do you measure? Let, how do you actually just figure out if you are measuring not just performance, but how do you measure the, the ethical uh, aspect of an AI model?
1: Yeah, I think this is the essential part that people should understand um, to make responsible AI. Uh, because to me, there's no such an like, ethical metrics the ethical metrics is actually the performance metrics by different dimension. Um,
0: mm, that's interesting.
1: Yeah, one well, thing am seeing that, uh, give you an example. Let's say I, a voice recognition AI model, um, how that model is measured. Uh, there's typical metrics called a word error rate. Uh, essentially it is, uh, let's say, how many words are recognized not correctly compared with the whole population. I speak uh-huh. one sentence, there's 10 word, the engine recognized too wrong, then the word error rate is 20%. That's a performance metrics, right? Um, But how to measure the ethical part for voice recognition uh, engine, you probably want to measure the word error rate against different age group, different people with accent, different people with genders, et cetera. There was a report published, I forgot, maybe a year ago, um, talking about all those major voice recognition engines. so the their word error rate is very low for like normal uh English or let's say um maybe people like you, your word error rate from the voice recognition engine is pretty low. Mm-hmm. But for people with accent, mm-hmm. what error rate is pretty high.
0: Mm-hmm. Right?
1: I think that's how you really using the performance metrics, but measure them against different dimensions, different group of people, that's the way you can detect the potential bias or issues.
0: Oh wow. So you really do have to think differently than just what's the math behind the model that we want to, you know build? You have to like then look at the output and then consider all these other questions, hopefully before you put it into production. So that sounds like a whole lot of cross-functional teamwork to me. going back to the design phase and we talked about you know the team that needed to be put together. Uh, and I and I would imagine based on the first question I asked you about, is it natural for engineers and data scientists to think this way? And the answer being, well, no, it really isn't. I would imagine that on this team, you've probably, in your experience, had to deal with some, call them non-adopters, people who just don't understand, aren't aware, or maybe don't really care about responsible um, and ethical AI. So if you are faced with a team member like that, what what's your advice to others about how to bring them on board and get them to come along or deal with that situation.
1: Yeah, Cindy actually is um, my personal experience is actually that case is really rare. Um, Most of the AI bias are introduced by like unintentionally. Once people know there's a potential bias, the uh, damage they can bring by not considering the AI ethical part, they will like really invest and make it right. That's majority of the case. Um, yeah. I think the case is really to increase the awareness and also give people the tool how to measure.
0: Got uh, it. Got it. And if you were leading a team like that and you kind of sense that maybe somebody just wasn't really getting it, maybe it's just a matter of making sure that you or another team member is raising the right question. So again, the, the person can learn more by doing and see that asking these kinds of questions is a, is, is a normal part of the process and something that kind of has to be done before you can, can roll it out. To your point, probably wasn't happening 10 years ago, right? But but then we had some very you know, famous mistakes, whether it was you know, the Amazon hiring tool that got it wrong or the facial recognition or, you know, and then people sort of, sort of stepped back and thought about it a little bit. So let's talk about deployment. We've talked about you know, design and, and then you have to build your model, but at some point you do have to get to deployment and usually that's pretty quick in today's day and age. Are you done really after you design it and put it into deployment? Um, Or is there more that that has to be done after you deploy it? And what I'm thinking about here in particular, I'll just give you an example. It's like the Apple Pay card that got designed. Mm -hmm. And um, arguably it was giving men uh, more credit than it was to women, even though their backgrounds could be, you know, 100% the same uh, and equal. And from what I understand, unfortunately, when some of the calls started coming in to the call center, like. They weren't prepared for those customer service questions. And their answer was, well, I don't, you know, that's that's the model we had built. I mean, the AI decided it. So how important is explainability and transparency um, in this process once you roll it out?
1: I it really depends on the use case. Okay. A lot of times AI works like it's a black box, right? It works, but you don't know how it works. Um, it's okay in certain use cases. Uh, let's say you build an AR model to predict uh, advertisement click-through rates. Uh, probably it's okay, right? As long as people click more, you don't really care how the model works. But, but if you have built a model, um, um, let's say if you build a model to help doctors to diagnose disease, or maybe help the, back to your, your example, help people to uh, approve a, kind of application or not. Yeah. I yeah. think that you, you have to be able to explain how the AI works, why someone gets approved, why someone not get approved, right? Otherwise, like, people will lose trust there. I, and yeah, also, right. I, I could bring back a good example Um, how I learned this it really in you know, a hard way. That's probably like 12 or 13 years ago, I was with eBay leading a small uh, search science team. So we, we built a, a lot of machine learning model to help to rank the product, help people find the product they want. Yeah. Um, we build the product, we build the model and uh, the user conversion increase, we were super happy. But then we get a, a phone call from like our customer success team. A lot of sellers asking them, why my product used to rank within the top 10 uh, on the search result page? Now it's uh-huh. the second page or third page. No one look at that. Um, it's hard problem. We didn't know, but we know it works. We didn't know why. Uh, then there's a, a few months of effort to build a, a tool to explain how the model works, to show people how like the ranking factors, maybe you need to make the title right. The picture might not be blurry, like all those kind of um, deciding factors, like when we show those, then that helps the customer success team to help the sellers to make better listing and also explain sure. those. Sure. Uh, I got some the gray hairs at said when got that. Uh.
0: Yeah, but but it was also go, going through that, that exercise, I would imagine also helped to show that it wasn't biased decision-making. It was actually very valid factors, like with a blurry picture or you didn't have a good description. So, you know, giving that kind of information when you're able to explain it and be transparent probably helped a lot of sellers really gain their trust back in eBay. But if your answer just simply would have been, well, I don't know, and if you wouldn't have gone to, you know, go figure it out. So you could explain it to them. Um, I think that would have exacerbated what a lot of people feel about AI still today, which is distrust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you think transparency helped in that situation? So let's just stay with the example that you provided. Once you were able to be transparent and explain it uh, to the sellers, how did that, how did that help? Did it, did it turn the tide? Did it cause them to have trust to get an eBay and continue to work with the company?
1: Not really, actually uh, it's um, it's on the other side, basically. Once you have that transparency, uh, you can not only help people to build a trust on AI model, but also to really encourage the right behaviors. Um, back to the eBay example, right? I think the seller now they know they need to have high quality pictures. Yeah. They, know, they, they know they need to make sure the description, of the like the the product title need to be accurate they also know like their shaping performance matters and also if there's any uh, like a buyer dispute with them so mm-hmm. that will also cause their item rank lower than other people Then actually in turn help them to encourage a lot of good behaviors they not only trust the AI model but also improve the picture like make better service ship faster which yeah. actually Going back to give the buyer a much better experience, I think this is this kind of transparency helps not only the trust but many other things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you're probably right. Okay, so this is going to lead us to a really hard question here. How do you square everything we just talked about, which takes time and gotta work cross functionally, and you know, anytime you have a group of people, can slow things down. Some would say, how do you square all of the design and the, and the deployment of models with this need to create minimally viable products and the need for speed, some would call it, and get that technology out fast. Those two seem to be kind of incongruent ideas. So how do you square all of that?
1: I'm a strong believer of MAP concept there. Um, you're always shaping a minimal viable product to the market quickly. I think that's the only way you can collect the real user feedback. Instead okay. of a lot of people spend a lot of time just thinking what the user might like. Yeah. And in reality, the user reaction can be very different from what you think there. Um, but but you're right, that also bring a like AI fairness problem if you just ship the product move fast without considering the ethical part. Yeah. Um, if people read our book, right? In in the beginning of the uh, real world AI book there, we shared an example of IBM Watson, computer vision API uh, development example there. The team moved really fast. They build the model, they ship them out. And then we, even without understanding like the training data. So what are the tags? What are the different classes for those images there? it creates a problem like for a picture like a wheelchair. You use a pretty bad tags, flags, but a wheelchair causes a big PR problem. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an example, like you do ship product fast, but without considering the AR part, the AR right. ethic part, right? Which right. causes a lot of problem there. Uh, back to the MVP and also how to square get this right. To me, I think the case, the definition for viable, um, ah. Back to the performance part, right? You don't like only measure the performance, but also should we consider AI bias in a viable definition? Mm-hmm. The answer to me is yes, especially when you build AI in those high risk areas we discussed earlier, uh, please move fast. And meanwhile, yeah. consider AI bias as part yeah. possible.
0: That makes a ton of sense. So back to measuring performance at a minimally viable level, right? Back to measuring it on different dimensions, it, 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 all, all you have to do is change your mindset about what is considered viable and kind of open your mind to viable doesn't mean just getting over the, you know, the, the click through rate or the, the, you know, the, the true performance methods m- metrics, but you think about performance metrics and viability for those differently, right? Yeah. And more holistically, that's a really good way to think about it. So it isn't an either or, it actually is all together and is just one. I love it. Okay, Wilson, I got to ask you, I know you're a CTO and you are steeped in this area, but you must have some places you go to for inspiration, to learn more, to continue to keep your skills relevant. And I love to leave the audience with recommendations. So where do you go or what would you recommend to the audience if they want to deepen their knowledge of this area more beyond your book? Would it be, is there a good podcast series? Is there a good documentary you could recommend, another book, um, uh, anything? What do you, what do you what, where do you go for inspiration on this?
1: Yeah, so I think AI ethic is a big topic, right? We probably can continue this type of discussion for another day or a few oh, yeah. days on this topic. <laughs> oh. I know. If the audience want to learn more about this topic and recent developments uh, in this field, uh, there's actually a few tech blogs are highly recommended. Those okay. are all from those big players. So uh, Google published their AI principles. Uh, if you search Google AI principles, you can find their blog. There's a lot of a, um, deep consideration how to make AI right in mm-hmm. all the different perspectives there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Similar things from the Microsoft uh, AI blog. If you search "responsible AI," Microsoft, you can find another blog. Um, okay. And the last part I really like a lot. It's really the AI blog from Facebook. So they have their five pillars. Five pillars of responsible AI. Mm-hmm. They not only give you like why this is important, how to measure this. They even give you some tools or some open source software to help you really um, makes it real in your project. Those are the places I think if people are interested, they can learn a ton from those three uh, blogs.
0: Those are great additional, and they're obviously going to be very practical. They come from the business world. They come from some other big tech companies that are trying to iterate and get better themselves. So those are, uh, those are really great recommendations. Wilson, thank you. You You've been very, very gracious with your time uh, and with your wisdom and and everything you've been able to share with us authentically about your own journey and even some mistakes along the way that that you were able and others to learn from. So I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. I love the book, Real World AI. It is a fabulous practical read on uh, how companies can implement it effectively. So thank you for writing the book and thank you for being the guest here today.
1: Thank you, Sandy. It's really great to be here. And thank you for your awesome program to get Mobin's leaders to understand the AI ethic part.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. We're on this journey together. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Sandy.
0: Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.